and this is where he puts in cool music. <laughs> and uh, so I'm just going to wait for that. Just imagine it. It's all synthy and whatever. I'm very excited. Whatever. I'm anyway. pumped up. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, here we go. I've given it enough time. Yeah. You can cut all that out. You're done right. Welcome to the Respond Worship Podcast. We are an auditive extension of the Respond Worship Retreat, where we aim to inspire worship ministries for greater effectiveness, instruct teams in worship skills, and ignite a community of worship teams. I am your host, Ryan. Uh, The other host, Jeremiah, is not with me today. As I said in the last one, he is just chock full of stuff this semester, being a worship pastor, a husband, a father, a guitar teacher at Ozark Christian College touring with CIY Superstart and uh, uh, probably some more stuff. Um, he can tell you when he gets back. But I am joined here today by Shane Wood. Hey, Shane. How's it going, Ryan? It's going really good. <laughs> uh, I met Shane first uh, when I went to Ozark Christian College, and he was one of my professors. Um, I, I hope none of the other professors are listening because I just have to say, your classes. I'm I'm the son of an engineer and an accountant and the deep, nerdy, factual, whatever. <laughs> like the further you can dig into it, the more mm. I like it. Your classes were some of my favorite classes. Hey man, I appreciate that. And yeah. you know, I guess while we're on it, I guess you, you know, you were one of my favorite students too. So good. good. I always knew it. <laughs> I always, I always knew, knew it. it. <laughs> so I was <laughs> holding out for hope. Um <clears throat> anyway, but for those who don't know you, mm-hmm. uh why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your family, your work, your education? Yeah, I've been married for almost, no, for over 19 years. So wow. coming up on year 20, uh, have four kiddos. One is just turned 18 all yeah. the way down to to nine. So we're in a, kind of a fun season and yeah. um, been here at Ozark Christian College as a professor of some sort for, I don't know, uh, since 2010. So like 12 years. Yeah. And then, um, and now I'm the dean of the master's program here at Ozark Christian College. And I don't know, I don't know if I'm sure I have another job somewhere. I just those are the ones that come to the top of my head. Those are the most important. Jobs. <laughs> there we go. There we go. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, this uh, this whole master's program thing is pretty <laughs> recent. Yeah. Right. Like we, I say right as if I haven't been keeping up with it every waking <laughs> minute of my life. Uh, Ozark just got regional accreditation mm-hmm. and. Um, between them and the National Bible College accreditors uh, got their master's program approved. And so this fall is the beginning of it. So it's yes. not like you've you've been running as a as a master's program dean. No, it's like this is it. Yes. Yes. And no. Like I've been building this sucker with yeah. my team since 2014. So when it launches, it will be eight years in the hopper. But yeah, we're we're launching it this fall. And man, we are. We are we're excited and the yeah. classes we have slated are pretty incredible. And we have a growing community of people that are coming and the degrees are ready to go. And we're pretty excited. I'm excited, too. Yeah. I, I wanted to I'm finishing my master's this spring and I wanted to do another master's right away because biblical languages and I want to know more about that. Maybe that could lead to another degree. Mm-hmm. And I told my wife, like, yeah, I want to do it. She's like, I'd love to be married to somebody who's not in school. <laughs> For one semester. <laughs> My wife's been saying that for 15 years yeah. to me, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> I was like, I'm so sorry. 
<laughs> uh, so I think I'm going to take a semester off. But <laughs> That's awesome. I would love to go eventually. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, it sounds really exciting. Yeah. Um, okay, I have a few questions for you. Yeah, fire away. Okay, first one. I already know the answer to this, okay. but this is for everybody else's benefit. <laughs> have you ever been re- involved? I almost said revolved. Have you ever been revolved? <laughs> you ever been involved with the respond worship retreat before? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a couple of years. I can't remember exactly when, but yeah, I got to uh, go and, and do like kind of the main speaking at it yeah. and then even did a workshop and, uh, yeah, I've I've been I was very impressed when I went to my wife's now been several times. Uh, yeah. She used to go with the College Heights worship yeah. team when Josh Huckabee led it. Yeah. So, yeah, I have deep respect and deep love for what what the Respond Worship Retreat does. Yeah, yeah. I was that was one of my first few years because I think I went the first time with Josh and the team when okay. I was interning for him. And so that's been six i was seven, gonna say six, seven years it i remember when it all started but it's yeah. been going now for quite some time which is yeah. really really awesome exciting the, okay this is this is fun respond worship trivia for everybody <laughs> if you don't go to the retreat i'm sorry that this is so boring but uh if you just want to hear shane you have to wait a minute uh so the respond worship retreat was started by a few people mm-hmm. um primarily Corey scott actually we talked about this a few episodes ago when i talked to Corey. yeah is Corey scott and kevin bryant the mm. worship pastor at Kingsway Christian Church. No kidding. Re- not retired. He uh, went to another church in 2019-ish, okay. 2020. Um, I'm now the worship pastor at Kingsway Christian Church. No and, way. Uh, in, my, in my effort to become Kevin, I have his job. All I need to do is lose 100 pounds, get an Nalgene. <laughs> Uh, and I think I'm there and, and red hair. That's amazing. So anyway, life cool goals, you know, those are, those are high yeah. life goals. The spirit of Kevin dwells in me, speaks through me. Um, anyway, uh, and then the other question I had was, um, we've been talking about ministry wins on here, um, mm. and just constantly wanting to hear what God is doing, um, in different areas, uh, of the church and, and his action in the world. Um, you're not exactly a worship pastor, Mm-mm. but what's a, a ministry win, a way you've seen God work um, kind yeah. of recently, past yeah. year or two? Or- well, and specifically it's been, yeah, I mean, this comes from stuff that's really been kind of uh, going for the last couple of years, but really over the last couple of months, um, not just me, but my family as a whole, we've really, I've really been pushing in our family and leading the charge on this definition of contentment. Um, and it's when I finally feel like it's kind of come in to my heart in a different way. Um, I've never agreed with the definition of contentment as just be happy in a place that's really bad. Yeah. Like I, I just think that I'm like, there has to be more than that. That just yeah. doesn't seem to totally jive. And so finally, um, my wife and I, we've, uh, not only came to the definition, but we also been pushing it for our kids, but it's, um, controlling what you can control. And that's, that to me leads to the concept of contentment and leads to patience and leads to, so a big ministry win for me over the last several months is finally settling into, I'm going to control what I can control and what I cannot control, I'm going to just let be, um, which yeah. is not easy because um, typically we get um, you know wrapped up in the things we are not able to control. Um, but there's a freedom in just whenever something happens, even in ministry or even with our family and just going... I know what I can control the situation, what I can't, and I'm going to press into what I can and I'm going to allow everything else to unfold. 
Um, and that's been, that's, that's a helpful for me as far as like being, um, an author, but being a professor, but even the master's program, but then just being a dad and a husband, a husband, it's like, I just can't keep spending my time focused on things that are out of my control, whether it be meetings I wasn't involved in, or whether it be, um, you know, you know, COVID for the love of all that's holy, you know what I mean? It's like. We just, a lot of the times we get wrapped up in things and spend most of our time frustrated about things we can't control. But over the last couple of months, we finally have settled in as a family to that. And it's been a huge win. It's changing the whole timer of our family unit. And that's been helpful. Yeah. I love that. That's a, that's a, that's a big encouragement to worship pastors, especially. I I think I've said this every episode since I've been on, but um, I had a band teacher in high school who said, if you get a 70% on a math test, that's at middle of the road. That's a C. If you hit 70% of the notes in a song, you are on fire, crashing and burning. <laughs> said the level of perfection required yeah. in music yeah. is so high. Yeah. And so I know for a lot of us, especially if we're, if we lead a more like parts focused instrumental worship band, yeah. if we, if we're kind of perfectionists like me, it's, it's sometimes hard to feel like the wins are when you're perfect and the losses are when you're not. Right. And that is not something you can no. control. First of all, if you serve on a team, yep. you can maybe control yourself, <laughs> but everything you're doing is writing the present. Yep. And the second you write it, it's the past. Exactly. And so like all any and all of those mistakes and lyric flubs and wrong chords yep. and whatever, like they are so quickly out of your hands. Yep. And, and then there are six to eight, whatever, how many other people. Oh, absolutely. And then you even add in the layer of, you know, worship ministers as pastors and discipling people. Yeah. And whenever somebody on your team makes a, a decision that you've been working with them on, but now they've, you know, backslidden. You can't control people's choices. Yeah. But you can control what the the tools that they have in front of them. Yeah. But but it's like I was telling my son just the other night. I was like, son, listen, I can point you in the right direction. I can tell you what will happen if you do good things or bad things, but I can't make the choice for you. And I, I have to be okay with you making the choice, even if it's the wrong one. Now, is that the goal? No. But I can't control my son. And there's yeah. freedom in that. But yeah. I can create an environment where he has the tools and can make the right choices. Yeah. Same thing as whenever being pastor of any team. You know, not just the event that we have on Sunday mornings. I mean, sometimes the power just goes out or, you know, I mean, tech stuff is wild. Yeah. You can be the most expert and things just go crazy. Sometimes Dad. you're at the <laughs> preaching and teaching convention and half of the LED wall, which is where all of your lyrics and sermon notes and whatever are. Sometimes half of it just shuts off. Just decides I'm not going to work right now. Yeah, that's there's totally, no reason. totally hypothetical. <laughs> I've never seen that happen here, but uh, yeah, that happens. And morning. in those moments, you control what you can control and whatever else you can't control, you just let go. And the, what they could control is uh, the projectors right next to the LED screen. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> the Lord provides. Yeah, but there's freedom in that. Yeah. 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 That's important. Yep. Um, yeah. So we today are going to talk about the uh, worship pastor as war general. Okay. And I think Shane's going to be the perfect person for this. So <laughs> let's get into our discussion. Cool. So we are talking about the worship pastor as war general. Um, I specifically thought of Shane um, to be the interview person on this um, because uh, not only is Shane a, um, he's been a 
a minister and a pastor in the in the like a vocational pastor in the mm-hmm. past. He's now a Bible college professor. His uh, education, he has a correct me if I'm wrong. Sure, a PhD in the Book of Revelation. That's right. Yeah, there's it's probably a lot more specific than that. Sure, but um, <laughs> this whole idea of the worship pastor as war general, um, we'll get into it more in a second. Is um, about spiritual warfare and about um, the 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 battle between the the invisible powers in our world as much as the visible powers. And there's no clearer picture, I think, um, in scripture about the the spiritual war being waged right now than in the book of Revelation. It's from beginning to end, this big dichotomy between God and anti-God, God mm-hmm. and death, God and Satan. Um, and that's what we're on the front lines of mm-hmm. when we're getting up to lead worship. Um, so I thought Shane would be the perfect person for this. Um, the The chapter starts out with this really cool part about Zach, the author, talking about um, how him and his wife, he was a worship pastor, is, not was, he's still there. Uh, he's a worship pastor, and he, he said him and his wife would get into these um, increasingly worse fights every single week, Saturday night. Um, and there's a lot that can go into that. I mean, it's, it's marriage and the closer you get to each other, the, the better you see each other's buttons to push and the more, um, intimate it gets. So the more easy to hurt each other it gets, you can have that whole conversation and that's all true. But they started treating it as a spiritual warfare moment (laughs) instead of just a marriage counseling moment where they were saying, I think, um, whatever is evil in the world, I think Satan is trying to pull me from being a good worship pastor tomorrow for the sake of um, the flock that I get to lead. Um, and he's kind of pulling me out of this through our fights. And so instead of um, being ready for him and being defensive, uh, being ready to fight, he started being a lot more gracious and whatever. Um, and this, this, uh, the fact that it was Saturday night, the fact that it was like his mental preparation time for Sunday morning um, alluded to it a lot more. Have you ever, <laughs> probably, have you ever, uh, as a pastor, as a Bible college professor, run into that kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, and matter of fact, what, what, what's what's also kind of interesting on this is um, is uh, definitely I was an associate pastor, but I also was, uh, uh, I led worship for a yeah. church for like four yeah. or five years. Um, and absolutely. Uh, and I think everybody on some level can understand how this works, whether there's spiritual warfare in in a uh, in in a way that disrupts um planning in a way that disrupts unity in a way that disrupts just straight up worship services now what i'm not talking about is like you know every time something goes wrong we blame it on the devil you know yeah, kind of and, yeah. and it doesn't even sound like that's what Zach was talking about or what are you even alluding to uh but without question i i think it's important for worship leaders to remember that that uh as much as we are engaging in a father in a, a good father, uh, a holy trinity, uh, there is an enemy that is countering, that, that is functioning on the opposite side. Um, I remember years ago, somebody told me, they said, what's the number one thing that you would want to tell this generation? I said, I would tell them every moment that you wake up and step out of bed, you're stepping onto a battlefield. And if you can understand that there is an enemy, um, uh, that, that actually is 80% of the war. It's very easy to forget there's an enemy or to misdiagnose who the enemy is. 
And so we start fighting with spouses or we start fighting with other ministers or we start getting frustrated with X, Y, and Z. But it's like, um, if you remember who the enemy is, it actually clarifies how we even fight the war. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the big things I would even uh, point to. And I I don't want to, um, obviously, I don't want to, you know, what's worth short circuit the um, conversation and where yeah. you want it to yeah, go. Yeah. But I will say one of the things that's really important for worship mem- leaders to remember is that the veil between heaven and earth is super thin, super thin. Uh, and and it is actually their job um, to to remind us that it is thin and then to um, offer the opportunity to pierce it. But if the veil between heaven and earth is super thin, don't be surprised when the veil between, uh, you know, us and that which is not of heaven is also super thin. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this whole this whole waking up to the spiritual realities beyond just our physical, I think, is really important for a lot of people today. Um, I, I've heard a lot of talk about how our our world, especially the Western American world, is moving a lot more postmodern. Um, but in the same way that fashion trends get to the coast first, uh, worldview gets to the coast first, and maybe slowly trickles in this way. Hmm. Um, and and at least in the Midwest, where I've grown up a lot, um, and definitely in different circles. There's been this modernist, not mm-hmm. postmodern, but this modernist uh, worldview and and modernism, enlightenment thinking says that there's a black and white answer to everything. Sure. Uh, science can explain it. There's got to be a rational reason um, and 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 looks at the physical. Um, it was coming out of an era where of pre-modernism, where um, if my crops didn't do well this year, it may be the weather, but it was the gods who made the weather or the spirits or whatever. There's a spiritual reason behind stuff. And as they learn more about all areas of science, studying our world that God created, they, they started to pull back from thinking that there are spiritual realities behind it. Yeah. But when Jesus was around and the entire world he was in, in the first century, everybody was pre-modern. Mm-hmm. Everybody believed that spiritual realities were behind the physical world they lived in. Yeah. And I, and I would, I would even, you know, I, the, the pre-modern modern thing is such an important thing because it actually gives us a spectrum or the poles of a spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. The opposite extremes. And typically what I say um, in a lot of different settings on a lot of different topics is that it's important to understand the extremes, but both sides of the extremes are unhealthy. Yeah. The pre-modern way of pushing all the way where there's a demon under every rock, super unhealthy. This modern way of looking at things where you're saying, uh, you know, science can explain everything. Everything's physical, super unhealthy. There's a sweet spot in the middle of both extremes, which, yeah. which is typically where the fruit comes from. Yeah. Um, and, in, and when it comes to worship, it's like every time, you know, a, a cable goes out, we don't have to blame the devil. But at the same time, if you're not praying before you go out there or consider things a spiritual war as it's happening. Yeah. You're 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 going to one extreme or the other and it's unnecessary. It's actually both at the exact same time. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is one of the reasons um, that I really love my degree program and I loved uh, one of my professors, Danelle, um, who hmm. really helped clarify for a lot of us what communion should be in a worship service. Mm. And she, she talked about, um, the different, I always, I heard this in church history class, the different views that the different reformers took on communion. And is it just a memorial? It's, it's certainly, we're not Catholics. It's certainly not uh, transubstantiation. Mm-hmm. I said that right. Yeah, you did. Uh, it's certainly not that, but maybe it's still spiritual in some other way. And she, uh, she really critiqued the memorial view. She said, you're, you're, you're celebrating communion as though he's still dead. Yeah. 
and not like he's alive and breathing and doing pretty good right now. Yeah. Like, and truthfully, I, I probably would be, uh, I don't even know if I have as much of a problem as transubstantiation as probably I should. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't. And the reason why is because and this is, this is the thing that's important to remember. Um, the union or the interaction between the physical and the non-physical is is not only such that um, you you are interacting with both at the same time, but that's the biblical view. And I think that's what you're yeah. getting at. Yeah. The biblical view is that the veil between the, the heaven and earth or the relationship between the physical and the non-physical, they're just not as separate as we want them to be. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating is as believers, we don't even believe it, even if we function like it. Yeah. So we act like, oh, no, they're in two separate realms. OK, well, then what do you do with the fact that, you know, Paul's apron would heal people. Do you believe that that's true? Because it's a physical something yeah. that had a spiritual reality or the hem of Jesus's robe, or let's even get a little bit more uh, tangible. Do we believe that our prayers actually impact things on earth? Yeah. Do we believe that whenever we are worshiping, it is actually engaging in a battle yeah. or do we believe those are all separate? We're just singing songs. Yeah. So then whenever I come to the Lord's Supper, I'm going, do I honestly have to believe that this is just a cracker and a bur- and blood or I mean in in juice? Yeah. And not what Jesus says in John six. This is yeah. my body and my blood. I don't know that I'm allowed biblically to keep these as separate as we typically keep them separate. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's the idea she was trying to get at and all that is that um, is that when we come to a worship service. If if it's so far removed from be- meeting God at the temple, the tabernacle, then like we're really off base. God got more available. And if I ask you, when's the last time you were with God? And you can't say at least a week ago. Yeah. That like that's the difference between uh, church as though God's there and church as though you're talking about God like like any professor talking about a historical event. Yeah. And even way in the past. Absolutely. And what you even brought up reminds me of also like the Old Testament teaches what we're talking about, too. Like the Holy of Holies demonstrated like we believe in omnipresence. We just don't function as if God is omnipresent. Yeah. But we also have the Old Testament demonstrating. No, there are unique locations and unique moments where what the veil between heaven and earth is not only more thin, but it actually permeates each other. Holy of Holies. I would say the communion. And I would also say settings of worship. Yeah. Like there is a reason why we have an entire book in the Bible that is dedicated to songs of worship. Music does something where it intentionally thins the veil. And yeah. it, it, it's a it's a for me, it's a conduit of spirituality. Yeah. That's so um, I've been in this whole program and it's a lot more high church friendly, Catholic, hmm. Anglican, whatever. OK, um, I heard the word sacrament for the first time okay, and I was yeah. like, what is that? Yeah. And uh, I'm through the whole program and I can't say <laughs> what it is for sure, <laughs> but at least for the high churches, it seems here's how I'd, I promise this will get to something that you guys find interesting. Uh, but <laughs> at least uh, for high churches, sacrament seems to be um, something that God instituted where we interact with God. Mm-hmm. And something I love about our, our charismatic brothers and sisters in their churches and, and how that's bled through Hillsong and Elevation into other denominations is how um, the music in, in a worship gathering, our singing, isn't the goal. Mm. The singing is the facilitator for our prayers. Yep. If you watch any Hillsong, I'm not saying they're the greatest no, thing sure. that ever happened yeah. in corporate worship, but if you ever watch a Hillsong Elevation worship video, 
people aren't standing there, uh, like in some churches I've been a part of, uh, just blankly singing it and then looking bored or anxious or weird during mm-hmm. the instrumentals and spots between the lyrics, whatever. They're praying and they 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 just say the same prayers with everybody else when the mm. lyrics are in, are in time. But in all those instrumental breaks, you hear like all the people vocally praying during they treat yeah. singing like a sacrament. Absolutely. And let me, uh, this is the way I've always kind of understood from uh, my studies of sacraments of what it is. Yeah. It's a movement of God towards us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, there, and therefore it becomes a unique entry point of grace. It becomes yeah. a unique entry point of interaction with God. He is omnipresent, but I believe the way I usually describe it, and I'm putting this together in a book I'm writing right now, is that is that God in certain moments and in certain um, events his presence becomes more thick or the entry point becomes more cavernous where we actually are able to walk through. And in those moments, uh, so like I believe communion is, this is actually one of the reasons why, and it's gotten lost in all the political debates, but this is one of the, one of the sacraments that the church has always looked to is, is marriage. Yeah. And, And the church forgot in all the culture wars, why we're fighting for marriage. We just said, because it's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And we've just not really understood even what the concept of marriage is. Yeah. The church has looked at it as a sacrament, as a unique entry point of a movement of God towards us. Yeah. Um, and worship is this. And I do believe it should be treated sacramentally yeah. um, because, and we even know this, this is, you know, to kind of bring modern, pre-modern stuff together. Yeah. Uh, we know music can actually transform the way that our brain functions. Yeah. We know that it can therapeutically heal or even whenever it's a part of um, Alzheimer's units and dementia. And like, yeah. we know without question that music um, has these different non-tangible qualities that actually seem more spirit oriented than they do t- physical. And we yeah. scientifically can prove this. So I talk to my students all the time as I say, it is scientifically proven that if you study to classical music, classical music, not not just any music, but classical mm-hmm. music. And then right before you take the test, if you listen to classical music, you will actually score 10 to 20 percent higher. It's scientifically proven. Like and so I was telling him, like, why would you not then do this? I'm giving you 10 to extra 20 points extra for your yeah. for your test. Why? Because music taps into something that is beyond us. Yeah. And so whenever we then bring this into the concept of worship and war and the battle, it's like there is something I do not believe worship is confined to singing. Yeah. At the same time, I Absolutely. do not think we need to minimize the singing. Yeah. It is a it's a crucial element of the battle. It absolutely is. We were we were talking, I was talking last time with Josh about how um there's a the quote that Zach has in the last chapter that kind of says, I'm gonna summarize this poorly, that it helps us sh- us totally show up. Mm. Um, he, he said more specifically, it, it helps us um, engage our, our will and our emotions and our body mm. and our whatever. But I think another way to summarize that is it helps all of us to show up. Yeah. Not just the, we're not just data computers, yep. um, which I mean, we're getting to one of my favorite chapters here in the next, I don't know, 10 chapters. I don't know how far away it is. Um, the worship pastor is emotional shepherd, which is mm. a big critique. I've always heard from, from the, the more cognitive uh, mm. ministers and, and people in churches that like, Oh, you're just emotional manipulation and whatever. And it's like, mm. my response to that would be, yeah, 
Yeah. Okay. No, I, no, had, no, I had. I had this conversation. But the word manipulation is is it definitely has a negative connotation. Yes. But to suggest that we should not target people's emotions is to actually say God created us poorly. Yeah. If He created emotions and we're emotional beings, why would we not? Why would we not pastor that? Yeah. Why would I not pay attention to this? Yeah. So somebody, somebody uh, said not too long ago, they were talking about their, 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 their child making a decision for Jesus. And they were like, well, I just want to make sure it wasn't an emotional decision. And I pushed back and I said, but all decisions are emotional. Yeah. Like you can have, what about, you know, if you have two sets of data sitting next to each other and yet you choose, I believe this one's the legitimate set of data. What do you think actually helped you make that choice? Yeah. It's emotion has a role in every decision that you make. Matter of fact, Plato even taught this, that emotion is not the same as rationality, but to suggest that they can be divorced from each other is to not even know the the vehicles that we're talking about. And and so I would even say you, when you're preaching, you're also, you're also attacking emotions. And if you're not, you're not doing preaching right. Every time you tell a story, every time it's, it's either. Uh, I like to run my lawnmower all the way down to right. E and whatever and trying to get a laugh. And exactly. Or it's uh, it's I had this student in my youth group and they were really struggling with depression and suicidal thoughts. That's emotion. Yep. I mean, you're you're telling good stories and you're saying good stuff, but it's absolutely because that's part of us. Absolutely. And it's I think I think the trouble is sometimes people we're way off course, but we'll it, get back. We'll get back. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the trouble is sometimes people think of God as. Uh, I was reading Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. People think of God as a monad, as a single person. And a single person would have all of his focus uh, uh, not on relationships, not on emotion necessarily, Mm -hmm. um, but on outcomes and and facts and whatever. And the fact that God is is a trinity, that Mm -hmm. he's an eternal community of love, and that like He's and that that is overflowing to us in creation and overflowing to us in salvation mm-hmm. and and uh, our transformation, sanctification and worship and all that. It's an overflowing of this instead of the like stodgy bookkeeping yeah. legalistic mm-hmm. um, God that you would think if if uh, if he created us as a monad and we weren't supposed to have emotions. He wouldn't have emotions. Exactly. That's where I was trying to get. So, so let me, let me pull this all the way back around to the, some of the stuff we were talking yeah. about inside of a worship moment. Whenever, whenever the worship leader is lead is becoming in a sense, they're at not only offering the conduit uh, yeah. through, through the songs, but they also themselves become the conduit yeah. through which a mutual interchange occurs. This is where worship is not a passive event. It is something that you are engaging that is then also actively happening to you. And so I don't know where he goes with the chapter on emotions, but in that moment, the, 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 the goal is to allow to create the space. You cannot control this, but you can control the space. You can create the space where the person is able to be unearthed. Yeah. Emotions, thoughts, questions they are you are creating an atmosphere and an environment and with a song for them to be unearthed by the spirit to be upheaved by yeah. the spirit so that the spirit then because typically whenever you're dealing with um, a lot of things that have gone not just stagnant but they've actually calcified into a place yeah the only way that you can actually bring mobility back to the soul it's kind of like um it's like a physical therapist yeah. their goal is to create more motion a worship leader's goal is to help the partner with the spirit to unearth the person to allow more motion to occur, yeah. whether it be in their emotion, whether it be in their thoughts or questions, or whether it be through the statements of of reminding of who God is that will actually be the corrective of behavior. Yeah. 
the bottom line is we don't even have to dictate what it is that's happening in each of the individual people. Yeah. We create the environment in, in all of this. Sorry. And I, I don't want to keep going too much. Um, all of this is the reason why, though, Satan considers this as something to disrupt. Yeah. If, if we want to get back to why is this become a, a war? Why is it like in Revelation when I teach yeah. Revelation, one of the lines I always use is worship is war. Yeah, the, that, he says that in here. Okay, cool. Uh, Did you get that from him? I'm kidding. No, I, I was going to say, I've been saying that for 15 years. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He got uh, it from you. Okay, yeah, well, I don't know about that. But uh, <laughs> but it is a war because ultimately it can be one of the most transformational moments because yeah. things can happen beyond what words can capture. Yeah. And Satan will do whatever he can to disrupt that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a way to describe that is, is uh, we're trying to lead people to the place where the spirit is going to use the scalpel and cut away the scar tissue and do a little carving himself. And hopefully you, you wake up from that operating table and look a little more like Jesus yeah. in, in the way you act and your demeanor and your priorities and all these different things. That's something that Satan would love to stop. Absolutely. And let me interject this right yeah. before you move on to whatever we want to go to next. This is also one of the reasons why I say the number one thing that a worship leader can focus on is their own holiness because I actually believe that in those moments, what can actually choke out the conduit is the is the sin of the worship leader. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying you have to be perfect, but I'm saying you need to be really focused on your personal holiness because you actually can constrain the conduit yeah. that you're offering. And whenever yeah. there there is a different something, I've had this happen twice in my life where I was in the audience and I was like, something's not right. Something doesn't feel right. And, 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 and I don't want to, you know, get off of me and you brought up charismatic. I don't want to go too charismatic because I also yeah. know the setting of the, uh, of the uh, movement that I'm in and we're not very charismatic, yeah. but, uh, come to find out later, there was adultery happening with the worship leader. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where the, the sin itself of the worship leader is actually, um, in a sense, it's the size of the pipe that the conduit's going to be able to pump things into. Yeah, this is the reason yeah. why the priests, and you know, whenever they were in the cultic worship of the temple, would have to go through deep ritual uh, cleansing rituals of their own sin and of their own life, because they are very much the bridge through which the heaven and the earth come together. Yeah, whether you like it or not, it's kind of like if if you know where James gives the calling for teachers, be careful, everybody that wants to be a teacher, because you're going to be judged in a pretty intense yeah. way. I would look at a worship leader and I would say, you need to understand you are the bridge between heaven and earth. You are a priest in this moment and your personal holiness yeah. really matters. He Zach makes a big point in here at a different chapter that um, that Jesus is the one and only true worship leader and all that. And that's true. Every time we are worship leading and worshiping, we're trying to join Jesus in his perfect worship of the Father and have our worship and our prayers and everything refined by Jesus. All that's true. At the same time, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Absolutely. And every worship pastor and worship leader and song leader and whatever else you want to call them, um, we're all asking people to follow us as we follow Christ when we get up there and start singing. And if we're not following Christ, you're saying, follow me as I drive off this cliff. <laughs> And this this yeah. is one of those moments of extremes. Both extremes are unhealthy. If you act like yeah. that Jesus is the only worship leader and we don't matter, it's like actually God would never do that. Yeah. He wants to partner with us. Yeah. But he doesn't want to take he doesn't want to eradicate us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the exact opposite also is true. Or I mean, it's also dangerous. It's not just you, it's also Jesus. It's the sweet yeah. spot in the middle where yeah. we are partnering with the spirit. Yeah. But to suggest we don't have a role or that what we bring doesn't matter, yeah. that's just simply not biblical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
it's um so Zach talks about uh he gives this really cool thing, and I love this part of church history. Like the first couple hundred years of the church, they do some cool stuff. One of the things they do in Christian initiation, mm. um, mm-hmm. it starts in oh, I think the mid hundreds. I don't know, you can clarify that for me. Sure. Um, but by by like the 1500s, especially, there's this there's this renunciation ritual before baptism. Um, and it, I think Thomas Cranmer, uh, by, by his day, it looked like this. It says, dost thou, that's my favorite part. Oh yeah. Dost thou forsake the devil and all his works? I forsake them. And that's, that's part of your baptism. Dost thou forsake the vain pomp and glory of this world with all the covetous desires of the mm. same. And then the third one, dost thou forsake all the carnal desires of the flesh so that thou may, will not follow so that thou wilt not follow and be led by them. There we go. Yeah. Um, and then he breaks the rest of his chapter down into these three mm. uh, refutations. That's awesome. We already talked about the flesh a lot, the personal holiness. Um, he, Zach says about that, that, uh, that good and true worship assaults the flesh by forcing it to cower in fear. Huh? Like, like the sinful, fleshly, selfish, yeah. evil parts of us, the scar tissue that God's trying to cut away or that actively cancerous sin in our lives that mm-hmm. God's trying to cut away. Worship assaults that by making it, um, forcing it to cower in fear. Um, but backing up to the second one, do you renounce, dost thou renounce the world? Hmm. Uh, he says, worship assaults the world by proclaiming its death. Darn. It's this prophetic, um, you know, okay. You know, here's another worship resource for you. Uh, it's called uh, The Joke by Brandy Carlisle. Huh. Oh my okay. gosh, that song's so good. Um, and it, th- I'm, I promise it's going to connect. Um, <laughs> I wish I could look up the lyrics right now, but I don't want to spend all our time doing that. It's this whole, she's such a good songwriter. She's, mm. she's just a good artist. Yeah. Um, but she has uh, two separate verses, one about um, a, a boy who's bullied um, for really being into clothes and thinking like wanting to look good in school, mm-hmm. like, like probably junior high, I bet. Sure. Um, and then, and then a girl who has to carry the weight of the world, mm. um, when, when it's a man's world and whatever, Jeez. both of these verses that like tell their story a little bit, some of their struggles. And then it gets into the chorus talking about people kicking dirt in your face. And it ends with, I've been to the movies. I've seen how it ends. The jokes on them. Huh? That's awesome. Oh my gosh. It's so powerful. Yeah. I'm not, I'm my, I, I describe my family versus my wife's family is the world happens to us, but mm. their family happens to the world. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. E- even, even going out to eat, you order like a, like a burger and they give you a salad, no dressing. And you're like, guess this is what God wanted me to eat today. <laughs> their family is like, I asked for a steak medium rare. This is medium italicized rare or something like so close, but I'm still going to wait. It's it's we have this different level of assertiveness to the world, but yeah. but there's something different that happens when when you know the end of the story. Yeah, no, and I uh, a couple of things with that. First of all, those the, uh, I've never heard that version, especially from the 1500s. Uh, but when it came to so I'm thinking Hippolytus, third century. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he would actually have three years of yeah. not just catechesis, not just teaching, uh, but even they would actually have multiple exorcisms. 
yeah. on the person, which we don't even have a category for that. We think, oh, we only exercise people. The Catholics only do that whenever somebody's possessed or deliverance ministries. And sometimes they all can get off on we- like weird trails and they can. Um, but there was there was an actual pronouncing of you are now um, denying the permission of that which you used to belong to to be a part of your future. Yeah, it just it's no longer. And sometimes you have to have this multiple times. And so there would be this great um, exorcism, uh, which would be a renunciation of Satan that usually was even done. A lot of the baptism services were done. You would be renouncing uh, Satan and doing those as the sun rose on Easter yeah. and before your baptism, which it, then it brought in time and space um, into what you were upheaving and dying yeah. and resurrecting. So that that concept of Christians needing to go through therapeutic exorcisms or renunciations of Satan yeah. are essential. And all three of those, the first one that you described actually is the foundation upon which the other two renunciations come yeah. from. By first renouncing the spiritual aspect, the Satan connection, you then move to the renouncing of the world, which is external moving towards you and then the flesh internal moving towards the world. Um, So I love, I love that concept. And I really wish that was something we had as a part of our um, initiation rites. It it brings in something unique. Now, what I will, what I'll say about um, worship's connection to that second one in particular, um, in a very real sense, worship uh, in all of its facets. So now I'm not just talking, you know, worship like singing. I'm also talking tithing. I'm also talking, talking, you know, um, uh, communion, they are protests of the world. Why is giving an offering so essential inside of a worship service? This yeah. is one of the things I actually, I, I go to a church and I love it, but I'm bummed that we don't pass the plates. Yeah. We don't pass it because we want to make sure people that are guests there feel comfortable, blah, 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 blah. And at least when COVID started, like 100%. if you did pass the plates, you stopped for a minute. hundred percent. And I um, totally understand all of that. And I'm not even lamenting that to a certain extent. Yeah. However, I do want to make sure whenever we're pulling out elements like that, we know why we're bringing that, why they were in there to begin with, because you yeah. need to answer the question. If I pull this out, what will we have lost? Yeah. There is a unique moment of protest whenever you take what the world worships or pushes us towards materials, finances, money, uh, and you say, I'm going to willingly give this away in a worship setting as yeah. a way of saying, I am governed by a different set of principles. So, yeah. so we give, my family and I, we give online. But I told my wife, I was like, there's a part of that I hate. Yeah. Because I don't get to experience the the intimacy of the protest, of the renunciation. Yeah. So if it's direct direct to positive, I love that because I don't forget. Yeah. Yeah. But I yeah. hate that because there is something about the ritual that matters. And so I love, but I love though that it, that that what he's bringing out is from the baptism moment. Yeah. The baptism moment is supposed to be the way then that you live inside of this Christian community yeah. from here forward. And renunciating materials is essential, and that's what worship should cultivate. Yeah. There's this renunciation of that. Um, and I, I remember when I was interning for Josh, um, he was specifically in the middle of thinking through how do we revamp offering as a worship act rather than as a necessity as a whatever. And they would have a host do a good job of talking about it um, and, and talking about where your money's going sometimes and whatever. Um, I, I wasn't at a thousand college height services, so I can't, sure, I'm right. not yeah. critiquing that at all. No, absolutely. But um, he was like, how can, how can we leverage that 
um, back into a way that that we are actively submitting and God is actively working in us and meeting us there and 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 uh, whatever. And it was super cool. At the same time, I was here at Ozark Christian College. I got a worship ministry degree, a bachelor's. And part of that is growing in your skill set, mm-hmm. leading. This is the pipeline funneling you into a church where a service is probably mostly preaching and singing. Sure. And one of my biggest laments over those two, I say laments. Meanwhile, I'm a worship pastor who is doing exactly this. But right. one of my biggest laments is how skills based these are in our churches today. Yeah. In in the first century, you're hiding out in a house. You don't have a building. You don't have a sign. Yeah. Um, you're hiding out in somebody's house. However clean their living room is, is however good your worship space looks. <laughs> sure, right. And um, you have somebody or a group of people who know the scriptures to some degree, and they just try to talk you through what they know. Mm-hmm. And if you sing, you're singing Jewish Psalms and you're mm-hmm. singing um, uh, hymns, which maybe are like Philippians 2 and John 1 and mm-hmm. and some of these New Testament Christological hymns. and and uh, That they were writing. That they were writing right now. <laughs> yeah. um, nobody in there like worked in Nashville, right? In in any of those churches, maybe in Corinth, mm-hmm. um, but like <laughs> like it was not skills based. It sure. was this mutual journey, and y'all were a part of it. Here, though, it feels like we don't have church unless some professionally equipped preacher gets up and gives us a polished, worked on sermon. Sure, and it doesn't feel like church happened unless somebody who's been practicing music for a decade gets up and leads you in music that you think is excellent. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now here's here. This is also one of those moments where I would say both extremes are unhealthy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, what I don't think we need to do is to go back to where no one is skilled anymore because yeah. that's the more real way of doing worship. No, yeah. the Holy spirit gives us gifts and skills. And I think that we can bring all of those to, to bear in a way that yeah. they can still accomplish the same thing. What I hear you lamenting is, is that there is some of this. And I think that's where the concept of worship being war is so important. Yeah. We're losing some of this, we're losing some of these components where we don't always remember everything that matters. Yeah. Um, the skills do matter. I actually believe it's important to bring your absolute best. I mean, yeah. when you come to the rituals and the way that God specifically went through every little piece, orchestrating all of the sacrifices down to the very last, you know, yeah. carving out of the animal, he gets pretty specific on every little detail he wants. And it is polished. And those priests knew what they were doing. Absolutely. At the same time, you need to be able to bring the skills with that spiritual dimension. Yeah. Understanding that I can prepare everything I possibly want with the amount of, you know, uh, you know, tracks that I've preset that come yeah. with the click track that goes into yeah. our in-ears and the voice that says verse one, you know, and all yeah. that fun stuff. And all that I actually find to be okay yeah. and holy, God honoring. Yeah. And yet, do we remember every time we pick up the guitar or press our fingers to, you know, the keys or, or put our mouth up to a microphone that there is an actual enemy that we are targeting with this moment? Yeah. That there is something uniquely happening in the intersection of heaven and earth that we are that we are actively engaged in a war. Do we preach from that place? Do we sing from that place? Do we even understand that um, this, the music that we are laying down to set up offering is also offering, yeah, creating that holy yeah. or 
frankly, strange space. This is why I think what you wear and don't wear on stage matter. So, for example, I understand I'm not anti whatever, but I'm like, you know, like I do have a Nirvana T-shirt because I'm a child of the 90s. <laughs> yeah. But bringing that into a worship setting is invoking a different set of something into that physical space that actually is antithetical to what that space is supposed to be crafted for. Yeah. It actually would be a deterrent. Even if no one saw it, even let's just say I have my shirt buttoned up all the way over and it was totally covered. I'm actually inviting something different, though, into that space. And I need to be asking myself always, what am I inviting into the space? So when it comes to materialism, I do think we need to ask ourselves the question if we're wearing, you know, this is why I I do still subscribe to preacher sneakers. I think it's funny. Yeah. But I also think it's a question that should be asked. Yeah. Are we more worried about our our sneaker game than we are we're on stage than we are about our holiness and the way in which we have sin or not? Will we excuse our relationship to materiality yeah. in a way that that ultimately gives the upper hand in our worship services to the enemy? Yeah, that to me is what what is the fascinating thing you have to wrestle with is um, when these uh, you know renunciations is. I am actually denying the spiritual realm that is anti-God to be a part of this space that I am stepping into in the sense of baptism or that I'm cultivating in the sense of a worship leader. Yeah. It, I I think what you're saying is really important. Even, even going back to um, how, how excellent and produced and whatever some of our worship services can be. The antidote isn't, isn't, yeah, to go to the other extreme and have nobody who's good at anything do anything. Uh, I think part of the antidote is like lean on a God who supersedes all that while you're doing it. Yep. Um, like like part of part of what I like about I'm not trying to brag, but part of what I like about being musically proficient is that I can go on autopilot more with with my guitar playing and with whatever. This is why I need to. This is me saying this to me. I need to play acoustic more and stop trying to play all the other instruments that I know mm. kind of well, but not really because that autopilot moment is so good for me to free up my mind, to start praying for people while I'm, while I'm leading them and singing Absolutely. to, to invoke God's own pastoral call on my life rather than musical call. Absolutely. But the other way, I think um, a, a, another antidote to uh, the, the professionalism in church music um, is not eliminating it but making room for very unprofessional things mm -hmm. for things that, that you wouldn't see at a concert that you wouldn't see, whatever. Um, like, like in the past month our um, it fit, we were talking about Proverbs and uh, our, our pastor was trying to interact with people and what they already think about Proverbs and cultural Proverbs even, and all mm -hmm. these different things. And he had this open mic section in the middle and that for everybody who's like, at a church where you you're like, let's talk about the service flow before and get everything down tight. <laughs> Open mic is the most terrifying thing you can do because yep. you're afraid some, some kid's going to get up and just fart in the mic and hand it back to you. And you're like, ah. and that actually would be a positive thing compared yeah. to what could happen and people yeah. settling scores. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. But like <laughs> moments for real response like that, or mm. people's testimonies who aren't polished speakers, yeah. but people um, being brought to speak based out of the, deep impact um, God and had had in their life at some point. That's why I love our church does and a lot of other churches do baptism testimony mm. videos or at least moments before somebody's baptism. So you get to hear part of their story and, mm -hmm. and all that. 
that's why I love those moments because it's it's a it's a moment for for beauty and emotion and and uh, all that. But at the same time, we're waging war against the world of professional entertainment that would mm-hmm. say, I don't think that would sell. Sure. I don't think open mic would sell. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would sell in a reality TV kind of way, yep. but it wouldn't sell in a polished, produced, whatever. Yep. And and finding these moments or finding a moment for a, a six-year-old to try to read, I mean, a really easy translation, but yep. like to try to read a, a couple verses out of a gospel or something yep. like like these moments for you to involve the whole community and have people who haven't been training for this their whole lives, but who have been Christians their whole lives yeah, or and something like that. This is where, so I got, I got invited to speak to the staff of a, I won't say what church, but it was of a, of a very large church. Yeah. And they were like, Hey, just say whatever's on your heart. And which was fine. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't going to be a punk. I was going to yeah. do something yeah. that would actually draw them closer to Jesus. Um, but one one of the things I did emphasize is I said, here's one of the things I will say. Um, efficiency is not evil, yeah. but efficiency doesn't always create space for holiness. Yeah. And inside of a church that's as large as this one, efficiency is the, is, is prioritized almost at the, at the height. And there's a necessity of survival at times that is unnecessary for that. Like I, if we're not efficient, efficient, we will die because of the amount of people that we have here. Yeah. Totally get that. However, there is nothing efficient about art. There is nothing efficient mm-hmm. about music. Music, you can be, you can bring levels of efficiency to it, but efficiency actually starts to choke out some of the very spirit within the thing. So going back yeah. to the offering, yes, it is more efficient to do direct deposit. Yes, it is more efficient to have something you can text and to give straight through the app. But there yeah. is something about it that we are sacrificing in the name of efficiency that is that that we may um, we need we need to just count the cost to use a biblical example. Yeah. Okay, if I move the efficiency element this way, what do I lose spiritually? And there's a sweet spot in the middle. You can become so efficient that actually the Holy Spirit has no space. Yeah, and you can become so inefficient that actually the Holy Spirit knows has no space. Yeah, there is the sweet spot in the middle. Yeah. but a lot of our production and a lot of our um, even our proficiency usually is focusing on levels of efficiency. So yeah. we have countdown timers because we have yeah. to be efficient on the time that we have space. And I do not think that is bad until it starts to become a point where I can't sell this. A lot of times efficiency becomes something that we can clearly package and hand to someone. The problem is, is that, you know, I have pieces of art in my office where we're, sh- where we're actually recording this yeah. and there's nothing efficient about these artists. There's nothing efficient about what Caravaggio does. Yeah. There's nothing efficient about, you know, what happens with even certain, you know, icons that have been in the church for years. There's nothing efficient even about the book of Psalms. It just yeah. goes on and on and on and on and on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, Psalm 119 itself is like, what is happening? Yeah. But efficiency is not the goal whenever beauty or intimacy become um, the target. Yeah. And that's something inside of this war is that I think that Satan can actually tip us to as we become so efficient that we sacrifice intimacy and beauty, which I think are the very are, are transcendental conduits through interaction between us and God. 
So I, I actually am pushing back and I know this is something that I've caught flack for because of also my, um, also my push towards biblical justice and being good stewards with our money and not materialism and stuff. But I'm going, we need to quit being so efficient with our buildings and remember that beauty can be a part of our buildings too. And I, that's one of the things I'll give the Catholics props is I was like, dude, their buildings are no joke and the space matters. So sometimes efficiency, I think they at times go overkill, but sometimes when we've pushed back to being, oh no, we're, you know, we're going to strip away everything that's beautiful. When you walk into a building that is not even commensurate with the God that you're serving, yeah, what have we, what have we lost? And if we know what we've lost, that's helpful. So whenever you're, when you're spending all this time going down to the exact minute, um, inside of a worship service, that's not a bad thing, but you need to ask yourself the question, when I pay this much attention, what could I potentially be losing? Yeah. It's there's, I'm quoting somebody quoting Dallas Willard. So if they lied, <laughs> just know I didn't mean <laughs> that's to. That's awesome. Um, I'm pretty sure it's Dallas Willard and not Eugene Peterson. I think it was Dallas, but they, uh, somebody had asked Dallas, um, or he had, he had asked a question at a pastor's retreat. Uh, if, if research came out, that using hot pink envelopes for your tithe, uh, if using that raised your tithe amount by 20%, should you use it? Hmm. And everybody was like, yes, no, I don't know. He's like, yeah, you should use it. Just don't trust it. Uh, that's exactly don't put right. put your faith in it. That's exactly right. Said like, if that's what is working with people right now to help encourage their submissiveness to the Lord, like, sure. But the Lord is still who you trust, not the pink envelopes. And I, so yeah, exactly. And I would like say, you know, our new online campuses. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Let's do it. Don't trust it. Yeah. If in 10 years it stops working, if, if there are more examples of even, even me saying more examples of sounds like efficiency. Sure. um, Is there a good enough ratio where this is still worthwhile? But like. But this is the reason why there's a spectrum even on that concept is I don't believe that we should say no online worship. At the same time, I'm going like, but I also want us to make sure we ask the question, if we go all in on this, what have we lost in the battle? What have we lost? There is something that is so important about person to person that God became flesh. Yeah. At the same time. So I've had people use that and go, that's why we shouldn't do online worship. And I fire back and say, yeah, but at the same time, God did a lot whenever he was distance learning as the father in the Old Testament. Yeah. So let's not pretend that there, <laughs> yeah. there's one mode that rules them all. Yeah. At the same time, uh, we need to know what we are losing if we eradicate online. But we need to know what we're losing if we errat- if we actually overemphasize online yeah. to the point where in-person becomes non-incentivized. Yeah. There is a sweet spot. Um, and, and I think that's actually, so get back to the concept of war. I think that's one of the number one things Satan does is he pushes us to either extreme. He doesn't even care which one it is. Yeah. If he can get you to the extreme, he can actually get you off the things that matter most or the things you yeah. should be putting your trust in. Yeah. That's a brilliant tactic. You don't even have to get people to like yell at each other in a service to destroy it. You can cause little squabbles the night before. You can do whatever you can to disrupt this cultivated place. And here's the crazy thing that's that's about this is that as the worship leader, you can't even always control whenever that space becomes this sacred, pristine conduit for the spirit to interact yeah. because people that are walking in are also bringing something to the space themselves. Yeah. It's war. 
And you're going to have to use every strategy that if you, that's one of the things I will say, what's really funny because I'm actually a nonviolent advocate, but I've studied war almost as much as anybody has. I mean, I've like, I've got my Hitler book right over there that I've gone through. Yeah. I've actually got, you know, um, the, what is it? The 58 laws of power. Like I find it to be very fascinating because um, there are so many different tactics inside of war that we use in the spiritual realm. But yeah. we don't even understand that. But one of the key things in war is to make sure you have a unified symbol, is to make sure that you have different rituals, is to make sure that you have different songs. Because if you don't rally your nation around all of these elements, they will not have an identity with which they can use to assert yeah. themselves or to delineate themselves against their enemy. And this is this is the third point I want to get into, cool. backing up through his three points all the way back to that first renunciation. I ref, I renounce the devil and all his works. Um, this is this is the big reason I wanted you here is mm-hmm. is the whole duality um, uh, conflict between God and anti God in Revelation, which is them yes against the spiritual powers in their day, yes against the political and um, powers in their day because they were under Roman rule and and Christianity wasn't legal until three thirteen or whatever. But like it's it we're not, we're not different. We haven't figured it out and solved it yet. We're still at war um, with Satan and his forces, with the political, with whatever. The, 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 what, what I would do to what revelation clarifies is that yes, uh, in the time Rome is a character on this stage, Yeah, but actually it's not even the primary antagonist. It's not even the primary enemy. Yeah. And, and so what revelation constantly doing is telescoping what is happening to you in the present in what you can touch and taste and see the tangible, it telescopes it and it says, there's a bigger story than this. Um, so Rome, like the way I wrote it in my dissertation, actually on revelation, as I ended with saying, um, revelation reveals that Rome is too small of a target, that, that our target is cosmic, not regional, that our target is far greater than what any empire or government could ever satisfy. Uh, because ultimately if we tear down a Rome, Another Rome will come. This is why Rome is called Babylon and yeah. Revelation. Yeah. It's like we've seen this party before. It happened with Egypt. It happened with Babylon. It happened with the Medo-Persians. It happened with Greece. Now Rome's just the new, to use Revelation language, the new prostitute on the block. Yeah, That's just what Rome is. But every time one of those prostitutes falls, another one comes in and fills the void. And this is actually like one of those heartbreaking realities. So uh, my wife uh, works, has worked over the last couple of years close with a, um, a ministry to a strip club. Yeah. And the owner is actually okay with them evangelizing, being there, taking care of them, even if it takes some of the women away from the strip club. And they finally, at one point, one of the leaders asked the owner, like, why are you okay with this? And his response was, there'll always be another girl. That's heartbreaking. But there's yeah. a part of that that's also revealing in Revelation. There will always be another empire. There will always be another fight to be had with your spouse. But what you have to do is telescope out. There's a bigger war that's going on here, and it's much more cosmic. And if you attack the cosmic, it actually impacts the imperial or the or the the relational. Yeah. But the, what we do is we get it backwards. We think if we deal with the political or we deal with the relational, that it will then fix us um, in order to engage the spiritual. It's the inverse. Um, so, for example, I was reading a book once. Um, I can't remember the context, but it was about tithing. It was about money. Yeah. 
And they were like, you know what? If you if you actually get a hold of their heart, then they will give. And Jesus does the opposite. He says, I want you to give to free up your heart. Yeah. <laughs> it's 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 inverted. And it's that leads to the discussion on how people are holistic. Yeah. You are not just a data computer. You're also no. not just emotions. You're not you're also not just desires. You're a body. Yeah. And and something um uh, something I've loved about Catholic churches when I've been in them is how bodily their worship is mm, yep. uh, a little closer to, um, I don't know how to say this better. Uh, old timey churches. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> old Like where you, uh, you have all the music and you're like, sit on the stand on the first song, sit on the, whatever, stand on the last song and the, this and whatever. Um, they have that like three times as hard where oh, it's like, yeah. it's like, you come in, you stand, you sit for this, you kneel for that, you sit for this, you stand for this, you walk up to the front for communion. And, uh, and on the way in, you, you dip your finger in the baptistry baptismal waters and you do the sign of the cross. You touch that cold water that you were probably baptized in or, in, or other water, just like it in a baptistry, just like it you touch that water to your forehead. If there's not a clearer sign to your mind to bring you back to and before you your even are allowed, yeah, before you're even allowed to go into your seat, you actually bow your knee and look up to the cross. Yeah. It, th- there is something about it being holistic bodily that we've yeah. not cracked the code in the Protestant church. Yeah. We've not done this. It's, it's, and we, we know this, we know it intuitively, the spectator concept, and we're trying to find ways to be more interactive. But there is the reality of the closest we get to bodily movement is a meet and greet. Yeah, But there's something about that, that whenever you are, this is why I will say, I know COVID totally down, but passing the plate, that's as close as we get to bodily movement. Yeah. There's something about this that, that we are, and I will say this, this is what I feel like this new, uh, this upcoming, this generation that's come up, that's kind of like deconstructing things and we're getting a little overwhelmed. This is what they're saying. You have to minister to all of me or I will give you none of me. Yeah. And what we do, this is what I find fascinating, is we're blaming them. We're getting upset with them. Like, how dare you, you know, challenge this? And how dare you challenge that? My response is, this is an opportunity for us to look into the mirror and go, huh, what have we lost with the things that we valued? And so to, to even go back, I mean, in the book of Revelation, this is why I love this book when it comes, number one, the interpretive keys in the book of Revelation are the hymns. And I find that to be a very important thing to be to, be, to say on a, on a podcast to worship leaders about the importance of worship. Hymns are the interpretive key in Revelation. If you want to understand its message, pay attention to the songs that are being sung because that's usually summarizes the whole point of the chapter. But but in Revelation, it is a constant movement of what happens on earth affects heaven. What happens in heaven affects earth. It's this constant back and forth. And that movement back and forth is centered on worship to the point where in Revelation chapter 8, after the seventh seal is broken, there is silence in heaven for 30 minutes. And it gives the indication why. It says that they're allowing the prayers of the saints to come up. It's like heaven stops at our worship, even though heaven itself in chapters four and five was a total worship party. But then what you do is you have the prayers of the saints mixing with the prayers of the cloud of witnesses in heaven in Revelation six, where they're asking the Lord, how long do you avenge our blood? It's a constant movement of worship. As a matter of fact, how we overcome the dragon, Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, which is in the middle of a hymn. 
uh, says we overcome the dragon. We destroy the dragon by the blood of the lamb, what Jesus did, and by the testimony of the saints that would not shrink for death. Whenever we partner what it is that we are doing with what God is doing, this is how we win. And that affects behavior, that affects emotions, that affects what we think, which is why Paul says, you know, in the context of knowing the will of God, he says, we have to offer ourselves as living sacrifice and renew our mind. He's engaging, offering as a living sacrifice as a bodily move that has a mental something that attacks all that we are emotionally. So, so when it comes to worship, we really do need to be wrestling with not just the fact that we're in a war. But we need to holistically offer everything God created, which is everything Satan is attacking, our minds, our hearts, our souls, our bodies, and off, find ways, unique ways for people to offer that in this war against the cosmic evil that is controlling even the empires and even the arguments we're having on Saturday nights. Yeah, that's why um, my, my worship ministry story, why, why when I felt called into it, I was in seventh grade. I was at a junior high camp and it was in the middle of the singing and it was Jesus paid it all. And it was like, it, 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 it wasn't just singing. It wasn't like this is some good music. Could have listened to this on Spotify, but I think I'll give my life to the Lord and I think I'll do ministry. It was, it was a <laughs> singing in a community that, that brought all of me there. Um, and, and uh, what I love about the, so, so I, I haven't read this book. I saw the title and that alone inspired me. Um, it's Salvation by Allegiance Alone by Matthew Bates. Matthew Bates. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I had always heard salvation through faith alone, salvation through baptism in some churches that were a part of it and, uh, and, and these things. But Salvation by Allegiance Alone says you're not done. And, and, it, and it also isn't just informational. Salvation by faith alone is like, I have faith that Jesus is God. Um, so I'm saved. And you're like, it's not just the fact though, it's salvation by allegiance alone. And this whole, uh, the book of revelation, the way it shows people is in these two camps, the kingdom of heaven and the people along with that and the kingdom of this world and the people along with that people get really scared about the end of chapter 13, the mark of the beast. What is it? Am I going to slip and fall and face plant into the mark of the beast <laughs> right. and, and stand up and it's on my forehead? No, it's allegiance to anything other than God, including the kingdom of this world and selfishness and everything we're refuting in these three refutations. Um, but I, you can probably tell me this off the top of your head. There's a separate mark for the people of the kingdom of heaven. I think also on their forehead. And yeah, right absolutely. Hand. Chapter seven and chapter 14, not on their right yeah. hand, but on their forehead. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And it's this like, it's obvious that I'm a part of one or the other. Absolutely. This, this salvation by allegiance, I'm allegiant to Jesus. I lean on him for everything I need. I lean on him and I trust in him and I'm with him. And, 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 uh, my prayers, my praise are, are like vital to my life and my existence. And in the hymns of revelation, you see that the, the just explosive moments of their own allegiance. Like I can't hold it in. I'm so allegiant to you. Blah. And a hymn just pours out. Like, it's not like, okay, everybody, intro, verse, ready. Uh, no, it's it's just they can't help themselves. And Paul does that, too. Yeah. It's not even just revelation. Like, Paul will break yeah. into a random doxology. And you're like, where'd that come from? This is why one of the reasons uh, I, I, I'm closer and closer to saying what is salvation? It is union with God. Yeah. 
Like he's breaking down the barriers so we can become more united with him. But but I will also say union with God, He's he is infinite. We are finite. Therefore, everything that we have will be permeated by him and then there will be some left over. Yeah. Um, it's the reason why uh, I, I usually if I get opportunities, I even talk about I actually have a theological reason why my hair is long. Um, in, 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 it first was, you know, I first got a, uh, started growing out my hair for a modified Nazarite vow when I started my PhD, but now I grow it out because I learned through that process. You mean I can grow my hair, cut it off and give it to people that, that have lost it because of cancer or because of, I can give them dignity. I can give them, I can, because there's something about losing your hair where your greatest wound is now on display for everyone to, to ask about and to treat you different and to speak to you different. And, and I'm going, something as simple as growing my hair can actually help heal someone in that area. My theology should impact even how I grow my hair because union with God doesn't know anything that, it, that, that is off limits. Whether we're talking pocketbooks, whether we're talking clothes, whether we're talking efficiency, whether we're talking how I treat my spouse, all of it is supposed to be offered for union with him. It should permeate everything. And that's where revelation with this stamp on the head, it permeates you so much that even if people do not know your profession or who you are, they're going, there's something different about you. What is it? And you tell them Jesus and be like, oh, I thought there was something like yeah. that. You just smile in a different way. You interact in a different way. You, So I do have a, I have a new tattoo. Uh, not that that's, I don't know what your audience thinks about those, but I don't care. Jesus has a tattoo on his leg in Revelation 19. Um, but it's on my wrist and it's actually, it looks like my, my skin's being pulled off, but underneath there's a cross. And I wanted it because this, this to me is Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. What does the I mean there? Everything that I am, but it's Christ that lives in me. So in the spiritual realm, Satan, there is nothing off limits that he won't attack. So I don't know why we have anything that's off limits that we think that Jesus isn't after. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I was, I was talking with somebody recently and, um, came to the conclusion that the fruit of the spirit is less about, we, we use it a lot to say efficiency. The fruit of the spirit is how many people I baptized and how long I've been in ministry and whatever, and not character. When the the fruit of the spirit is character terms, love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Um, tying that into John 15, I'm the vine, you are the branches. You will grow us into character that looks like Jesus, people who look like Jesus. Um, I was just teaching on the Trinity to our youth group. They're really into all this super academic stuff. So I'm just going to pray. That's down. awesome. Uh, I was teaching on the Trinity and I just couldn't get, Michael DeFazio, day one of Acts class, um, talking about Acts 1 1, the, the story of everything Jesus began to do, alluding to the fact that he's still working, even though he's not in the story in a bodily way. And then from there to um, this Josh Garrell song that's a St. Teresa of mm-hmm. quote uh, that Christ has no body now but yours, no mm. hands, no feet, except for yours. Yours are the eyes with, with which he sees. Yours are the hand, uh, feet with which he walks. Yours are the hands that bless all mankind. Uh, and this, this is like the outcome of our, of our war that we lean on Jesus. We're a part of his goals, what he wants in the world. Yeah. Um, that we refute our own flesh and our selfishness and sin. We refute the world and how it tells us to live and, and how it tells us to prioritize and to love and to or not love and yeah. and we refute Satan ultimately. Zach 
ends the chapter with this. Ultimately, how do we lead the charge in the fight against hell, the world, and the flesh? By flooding all of worship, uh, by flooding all of worship spotlights on Jesus so that every last one of us can fix our gaze upon um, the one true warrior. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think Satan is has done fascinatingly. He's convinced us that the war is fought at voting booths. He's convinced us that the war is truly won at whether or not we get the right person elected or whether or not we have the right, you know, budget or Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah, And and, and am I saying none of that matters? I'm not going to swing the spectrum. Here's what I'm going to say. What Satan wants you to do more than anything is to focus on the things that will actually not affect his kingdom uh, eternally. And if we can focus on personal transformation and, and worship is really the way that he trembles at pure, holy worship in spirit and in truth. He trembles at this. So what can he do? I can distract. I can distort. But what I can't do um, is is ultimately deny that that will destroy me if they continue to press into it. And this is the reason why I, I don't think that a worship leader calling is something to be. Um, I, I think that we over exalt because we're modernists. We over exalt the spoken word, although I think it's valuable. Yeah. Um, I've given my life to that. Uh, at the same time, though, I'm going like, I think that we do, do not understand the significance of the worship leader in this war. It's almost like saying uh, the priests don't matter as much as the Pharisees and Sadducees. All of them actually mattered in their own settings. They did matter. Yeah. But it's going like, listen, w- whenever you are strumming a, str- a, a, a guitar, whether or not you're playing a piano or if you're singing a song or if you're even leading the, the, the spoken word in between the songs, yeah. you are actively invoking the key weapons against the enemy. And he will do whatever he can in order to distort that, limit it or ultimately destroy it completely. Uh, whether it be through disunity, whether it be through jealousy, whether it be through materialism, whether it be through, you name it. He's going to do what he can to distort it because in those moments we are actually storming the gates of hell. Yeah. It's uh, Lito Solorio. We're at preaching and teaching convention right now. This will come out way like month, month and a half later than that. But um, a guy named Lito Solorio just preached on um, Saul and David's relationship early on um, and how they were distracting God's people, mostly Saul, by this by this internal feud when they should have been on the same page. But his pride and his jealousy and his his anger and and his uh, his shame at at saying that he's only killed a thousand people, but David's killed more than ten thousand. Uh, his shame at that led him to have this internal struggle. Um, I don't want to force you to relive this sermon that you preached one time, but it, it's in my head all, it just lives in there rent free. Um, but there's this sermon he preached at college heights one time where the end of it was this picture of Satan. That was really gruesome. And then all of these pictures of people who we find uncomfortable um, uh, pictures of people who, if I was preaching the good Samaritan, Samaritan doesn't make our heart convulse in the same way that, um, for a lot of uh, Midwest conservative evangelicals, Muslim, gay, black, trans, those we hear those, and there's just a little part of some of us just is affected bodily. Um, and you had this, you had this part at the end of the sermon, whereas, whereas this is our enemy, the picture of Satan, not this, and then the picture of a human being in a context, probably one that we didn't even 
that that we may not find favorable immediately. Yeah, I I uh I took a pretty big gamble on that one, but but here's but here let me let me actually even walk through and how it ends because I think that really hits at the heart of what we're talking about. Um, is I do believe I believe if we don't have a clear picture of the enemy, we won't even know how to fight this fight. We won't even know why worship matters in the way in which we're talking about it. So what I did at the end of that sermon is I did, I I found the most grotesque picture of Satan as I could find. Uh, And I I did say, this is the enemy. This is your enemy. And then I said, this is not. And the first picture I remember, it was a person at the front of a gay pride parade. Why? Because in the moment when you're dealing with that context, I'm not saying you're not dealing with a sin. I'm saying, do you even know how to fight that? And if you think that the way you fight it is through boycotting or calling names or vote, you're, you're missing the enemy. He will get off scot-free. So then I went back to Satan. This is your enemy. And this was a couple of years ago. And so then the next picture I think I had was Barack Obama. Yeah. And I knew the context I was in. I mean, I'm in this conservative Republican area and I'm going, you understand that's not the enemy, right? And then we go back to this is the enemy, Satan. And every time I went on Satan, we zoomed in. Yeah. And then the next picture I went to, it was uh, the Pope. It's yeah. like, this is not. It's not your enemy. Then this is your enemy, Satan. And this is not. I don't remember what the what the last one, but the last picture I went to was. I think it was a church pew. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was a person sitting down the end of a church pew. And that to me, the I wanted to end there because my whole point was sometimes we even think that the problem of growth in the church or the problem of why we're not, you know, our budget isn't hitting is because it's that person down there that they're, they're, they don't like the hymns. And so, or they only want the hymns and that's the problem. No, you have to understand this battle is way more significant than whether or not it's somebody likes a music style or whether or not somebody likes what's happening on stage. This battle is is significantly focused on the true enemy, and that enemy is not flesh and blood. I'm quoting Paul here. It's played out in a unique way in Revelation, but Paul is emphatic. Your enemy is not flesh and blood. So why would you use the weapons of flesh and blood yeah. to fight this war? You see Paul live it out because he's like he's beaten and stoned and arrested by so many people. How many of those people does he evangelize? Like like maybe unsuccessfully, but how many, it, it looks more like, and this is a uh, harsh oversimplification, but more like a Martin Luther King Jr. and less like an early Malcolm X in that uh, Martin Luther King Jr. didn't talk about a single victory, talked about a, a double win, a double victory, where I want to um, free us who are oppressed, uh, African-Americans, from the the burdens of racial um, biases, racial Racial oppression, yeah. Um, I want to free us from that, and I want to free my white brothers and sisters from the burden of that on their own hearts. How that's weighing down their character and themselves. Yeah, he saw that. He saw their actions as just as deforming of them as it was mistreating yeah. of. Yeah, absolutely. Where some of the people resulted to in 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 violent things, he said, like I want to free them from the evil clouding their own heart, and that's like. When, when we want to get upset at people whose who's condition or race or whatever, social class and sexual identity, when we want to get upset at them, the goal is not to not see them in heaven someday, is not to see them as part of the all nations, tribes, tongues, and people. I, it's like I say, I say, if we do our job right, you will have to obey the command, love your enemy for eternity because yeah. they should be there right next yeah. to you the whole time. Yeah. Um, and it's like what I also say in my biblical justice class. We have this one day. It's in the semester. It's super predictable and it's going to make everybody uncomfortable. But biblical justice, you know, we're talking about a lot of the different things. And I say you have to understand that true biblical justice does not exist until both the victim 
and the victimizer come to Jesus. Yeah. Otherwise, it's justice. It's just not biblical. Yeah. Um, and, and biblical justice is this, this, this move towards the enemy and the perpetrator yeah. with the same grace and compassion and tenderness that you move towards the one that they're oppressing and victimizing. Yeah. And that's, that's because the enemy has been clarified. Satan wins if the victim or the victimizer doesn't find healing in Jesus. Yeah. So therefore I'm all down with, you know, these organizations that break up sex trafficking rings and even, and even put the sex traffickers in prison. But then my question back to them is now, what is your prison ministry to make sure those sex traffickers come to Jesus? Yeah. And a lot of times that's not what sells. And a lot of times that's not really even what's talked about. I want, I'm on the board of Black Box International, which which helps young boys pulled out of sex trafficking. I'm all about fighting for the victim. But I want to, I want Jesus to transform the victimizer too. Because if he doesn't, then we've still lost half the battle. Yeah. And, And ultimately, this is, this is really what it is. Like, if you understand our battle is not against flesh and blood then you don't have to attack the person at the pew that doesn't like the decibel level. You can realize that there's a way of serving them that wins the true battle that ultimately, if you, if you destroyed them, you wouldn't win. Yeah. The, the person in your pew who's, who's loud and against you, they're a person that God wants to see in heaven who God died for the, the high school or college age student who you're not sure about their morality uh, outside of, or their actual like commitment to the Christian faith outside of Sunday mornings. Like, yeah, that may be an issue. That may be a tension to wrestle with. Is that somebody God wants to see in heaven and somebody that God died for? Absolutely. And I'll give you a hint to all of those, the, the morality of that student and even the complaints of the person in the pew, it comes from a deeper wound. Those are symptoms of a, of a greater war that's happening inside of them. And as not just worship leaders, but as pastors of people, we have to understand they may hit us, but that's an opportunity for us to heal them, to get to the root of the problem. Because wounds do crazy things. And if we're medicating our wounds or we're handing out our wounds from what we do on stage, we're not actually dealing with the true the true war that's a, that's a, in, in the moment. Man, this has been really good. Heck yeah, dude. I don't even know how long this podcast was. This is a killer. I'm, I'm loving uh, it. It's pretty long. Okay. <laughs> not way longer than any of the other ones. Okay, It's awesome. just way longer than you said you had time for. <laughs> so I'm glad that uh, I'm glad we had uh, got to have this whole conversation. Thank you for listening to the Respond Worship Podcast. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to our website and social media. Follow and subscribe to keep up with new episodes and feel free to rate and review us. We want this to be the best possible resource for you and your team, so your feedback is extremely important. We also want to hear from you. Send us your questions, content suggestions, ministry wins, and stories, and we will gladly consider them for future episodes. Just email us at podcast at respondworship.org. That's podcast at respondworship.org. We look forward to welcoming you into another conversation in a couple of weeks. Take care.